Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Ooh. <laughs> um, just like a general piece of advice. Yeah, don't worry so much. <laughs> I feel like that's something that probably all of us could tell our younger selves. But I remember being like 21 when I started grad school and this older man told me, I was like, I have a lot of anxiety starting class, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, a lot of that will go away in time. And I did not want to hear it. I was like, you do not understand me. You don't get it. You don't know what it's like. Um, But it, it can be, or it certainly can improve beyond being like an anxious teen so yeah I think that if I heard myself give that advice then maybe it would resonate a little bit better than that man from graduate school good day good people my name is Brad King and you are listening to the downtown writers jam after party as you may or may not know we are part of the solid listen podcast network we're coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker today it is a lovely, lovely day as we're recording the intro. Do not know what the day is like on the day you're listening to this. Uh, but really glad you stopped by. We have a fun show today. Uh, Rebecca Van Lair, whose book, How to Adjust to the Dark, came out in March. And she's lovely. We had a very fun conversation. Uh, she's a writer based in the Hudson Valley. Um, and her writing has appeared all over the place. In uh, Tri-Quarterly, Joyland, Columbia Journal, The Florida Review, uh, Monkey Bicycle, which I don't know, but literally my favorite uh, name for a journal or whatever, ever. Um, it's been on the Plowshare blog, big thing, Electric Literature. So, uh, you know, she's been all over the place, and this is her first book. And we're really excited. I'm always excited when I get those people on the show. Because as a writer, I remember, you know, seeing the the, the first time your book comes out in print. I mean, I remember my first article. And like how I felt about that. And it wasn't that different from the book other than, you know, sort of the difference between, I guess, doing a sprint triathlon and an Ironman. Like, it's just longer. Uh, But that feeling of accomplishment and elation is the same. And the first time is always the best. So I'm excited to have her on the show. I'm excited for you guys to hear. Um, As you guys know, we have three shares here on the shares. We have three shows here on this channel. The Jam comes out every Wednesday. Uh, Jam Sessions, which is our nonfiction show, uh, and After Party, which is what you're listening to now, which is our weird-ass storytelling Q&A, those come out on Mondays and Fridays. So basically, there's two to three shows a week. You can get signed up wherever you listen to podcasts and never miss anything that we do. Also, need a little help from you guys. Uh, Tell your friends about us. All three of these shows are a lot of fun. Um, It's a good way to meet these authors 
because if you know me, if you've listened to the show at all, this is your first time listening, um, this is more meaningful to you, you're going to find out a lot about who these people are. Um, and that's one of my favorite parts about interviewing writers is that. Uh, so tell your friends about us and also leave us a review. You can either do it over an Apple podcast if you've got one of them fancy Apple devices. And if you don't, like me, head over to the Facebook page, The Writer's Jam, and you can leave us a review under the Reviews tab. It's very well named. You can go to our website, thewritersjam.com, and there we got book reviews. You can click on our bookshop link and buy any of the books from anybody that uh, has been on the show and support local and independent bookstores across the country. Sign up for our newsletter. And there's two ways to support the entire Solid Listen podcast network. You can either click on the Apple subscription. We have 12 shows. Malls and Nicole have put together 12 of the nicest shows you will find on the internet. And for $4.99 a month, you get commercial-free episodes and you get them before anybody else. Or you can click on the Patreon button. And for a dollar or $5, same deal. You get the episodes before they come out. Uh, you get bonus content, all kinds of good stuff. So it's a really nice way to be able to sort of span popular culture, support creators, clicking on that bookshop link, you're supporting independent and local bookstores. I feel like you're getting a vibe of the show. So, uh, as always, I am appreciative that you guys have taken some time to uh, stop by the bunker and listen to some authors talk about writing and their favorite stories to tell, which is what you're going to hear today. So, I hope you will sit back and if you're in a car, don't sit back too far uh, and enjoy my conversation with Rebecca Van Lamp. Why do you write? It's a hard question. I think there's like two answers. The first is like when it's going really well, it's great. It's just a wonderful feeling to feel like I've got these ideas, I'm getting them down. I think it's going well. I think I have something here. Um, but the truth is that that's not the vast majority of the time. <laughs> that's like 10% of the time, maybe if you're lucky. So beyond that, I think that there are a few other things. Like one is that just I've invested enough time um, well beyond that 10% at this point that I've like, I've got to make this work. Um, but the other thing that I like try to tell myself that's a little bit more philosophical or intellectual is that writing is a way for me to explore kind of like the questions that I'm struggling with in life without immediate consequences without doing something or having a conversation. And that I think that that kind of working through in writing yeah. can be helpful. Um, the 10% of the time it's fun and the 90% of the time that it's something else that just kind of um, staying with the question can be another good motivation to keep going besides the fact that I feel like I absolutely have to. A premise of this show is that I believe no matter what you write, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, screenplays, it's because an author experiences something that induces a question in their head that they then have to spend, you know, six months to three years with to figure out. Like, is that kind of what is that kind of what you were saying? Exactly. Yeah. yeah.
it's and I do think that's unique to writers. I mean, I don't know if it is, but it feels or maybe artists. I don't know. Like, yeah, well, I mean, you can I think it's hard, maybe answering a question in a visual way or with music. It's just so much more abstract, whereas like with at the end of a writing project, I think you can kind of get to like an, an actual answer that you could yeah. summarize, which may lead into the second question, which is. Uh, what's the question or statement that people say to you about writing that drives you crazy? And what do you say to them? But what do you want to say to them? <laughs> yeah. So I think that one thing that I just hear a lot, especially from people who aren't writers are like, oh, you must be so excited or like, oh, that must be so fun. <laughs> uh, but, you know, having had a book come out recently, a lot of that just like, oh, you must be so excited. And I think that I kind of give a wishy-washy answer anyway where I'm like, yeah, I think it'll be good. Or like, I think it's a good thing. And they can kind of hear that hesitation and they don't know what it's about. <laughs> but a more honest answer would be like, mm, it can be hard to get excited at all because I'm yeah, not taking my own advice to my young self or my adult self. I'm just worried. I'm just worried about being read. And I'm also equally worried about not being read. Like both torment me equally. <laughs> so. I feel that answer so deeply in my body. I've told people being a writer is being narcissistic enough to feel like you have something to say that everybody should hear, but also self-loathing enough to think you should not be the one to say it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's hard to be excited when you feel like that. I mean, there can be moments of it, but especially if someone's asking you like, are you excited? It's not, as you were saying, writers can be so self-deprecating. It's really hard to in that moment be like, yes, I'm awesome. I'm doing great. And did I see that this was, the, the book was originally coming out with Curbside Splendor? Yes, yeah. That's who I knew all those folks. Uh, and so that's the other thing, right? Like you're also in the publishing business and you're like it's hard to get excited because I don't really know what's going to happen next definitely yeah that was a you know an experience where I think back when my book was originally supposed to come out like when it was under contract in 2017 at first I was very much like wow this has changed my life and I'm a writer now and then in like kind of in mid 2018 when I was like oh it's not gonna happen I learned a lot about like what it takes to keep going um, or like what it, it means to the, the fact that being a writer means something a lot more than having, you know, a small press say that they're going to publish your book. So every writer has, like, I call it the one review. Like there's one fucking review that somebody wrote or said or something that they just keep with them. What's yours? So at first I was thinking about this and I was like, oh, I don't know if I have a review like that, like, and uh, certainly not of my book or like not of a short story that I've written. I don't, I haven't gotten anything like that yet. I'm sure it's only a matter of time trying not to look at Goodreads, but I do rem remember um, when I was in college, I had submitted this first piece, like one of the first things I ever submitted to a campus journal where things were actually published anonymously. And one of my friends was on the editorial board. So she kind of knew which piece was mine. Um, and she knew that the editor in chief like wanted to publish my piece. And he was like, I love it. It's so delusional. 
<laughs> um, and then I pulled it, like, even though it was anonymous. But yeah, I think that that idea of, like, you know, no matter whether it's fiction or nonfiction, as you're saying, it is yourself. So that feeling of like, oh, I don't know what's in there. Or like, oh, it's something completely different to someone else. Like, to me, this is honest. Um, to me, this is authentic. And yeah. just that idea that like, actually, it's it's delusional. I think that that haunts me a bit. And to this day, like, I often ask someone if they'll read something. And I'm like, will you read it to tell me whether it's unhinged? <laughs> so... So I think that that's kind of an insecurity that I've carried with me, that my own assessment of something is inaccurate. I mean, I don't think you got to be a psychologist to draw a line from A to B on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but also, that's a terrible thing to say about somebody's writing as an editor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that that's a, like an appropriate thing to say about a piece you want to accept at a editorial meeting. No, like not unless it's like uh, I'm going to come in and murder her, you know, like not unless it reads like a manifesto when you're like, uh oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that that idea that he was making kind of make I mean, making fun of it or taking pleasure in what he thought was like bad or ridiculous about it. I, yeah. You know, that's not a responsible editorial vision. You no. want to publish things that you think are actually good yeah i could see how that would carry like through though i also find it interesting i asked that question because about half the people tell me about a good thing oh really I yeah i think they're sociopaths i'm like when <laughs> i wrote that question it never crossed my mind that it would be a good thing <laughs> no no <laughs> no can't imagine it no, but somebody told a story about it being in their hometown paper. They are a well-known writer. And they're like, that was like the nicest thing that ever happened was my hometown paper reviewed like my fourth book. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. My, my local monthly did, they covered my book. And all I could think about was the fact that they used the wrong cover image. So they <laughs> pulled the discolored version from Kindle. <laughs> so. All right. This is one that has been wildly fascinating to me. And is the most writer processy question, which is what's the best writing epiphany that you've had? And uh, how did it come about? Like, like, when did it happen for you? I think that the biggest epiphany I've had is just to be patient. I think when I was younger and I heard that people took like eight or 12 years to write a novel, I was like, what are you doing? Like, stop playing video games, like get to it. And <laughs> that is, you know, I don't know if I have a 12 year novel on me, but with this book that was supposed to come out with Curbside Splendor, it, it, it came out in a very different version from Long yeah. Day Press and a better version um, because in the kind of like four years between submitting that draft and then revising it, I really figured out what the story was about and could make the book that. So I had that experience and then I also had another novel um, that I went on submission with, with an agent. And the whole time, like he would give me edits and I would be like, I think it's great. Like, I think it's ready. And then he'd give me some more edits and I'd be like, okay, but like, I think it's ready now. And eventually he was like, okay, I'm just going to trust you. Like, if you think it's funny, I'm sure it is. And then we sent it out and it didn't sell. Um, 
like it definitely got close, but now kind of two years after that, I'm at the point where I really see what the problems in that were. And they were kind of all things that I even knew about where I was just like waiting for, I would even ask people, I would be like, do you think I need to change this? And people would be like, no, no, it's fine. Um, And you know, my agent just kept telling me to be funnier. So, which it was funny, but it had structural problems. And I kind of knew that. And I was kind of just waiting for people to keep telling me, oh, no, 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 it's fine. And now two years later, I really clearly see the structural problems and I see how I could fix it, but then it's like, oh, like, is it worth it now? Um, but yeah, I just learned that just, you know, you want something out in the world, but you want something out in the world that you feel good about, something that you don't have questions and serious doubts about. And if you still have those, no one else's approval is going to make you feel better about that. So really just like being patient with yourself to get something all the way to where you want it rather than just being like, I need something published, um, I think is a hard lesson, but a very valuable one for me. All right. So the last one, which is the tie-in to the first one, and you sort of alluded to it with the curbside splendor stuff, which is to you, what does it mean to be a writer? Well, I think you have to do some writing to be a writer. You can't probably just think about stuff. But I think you could do like very little writing and still be a writer. I think that if you are kind of taking experiences and trying to make meaning out of them, um, just trying to reflect on them and give them a, a different shape, something that you can hold and look back on and make meaning out of it. And if you sometimes try to do that on the page, I think that that's kind of what it is. I'm always and those experiences, yeah, they could be like, I, I think that even if you're writing fiction, that it has that it usually comes from that place. I think the question always does. You know, like I think fiction writers sometimes handle those questions using unrelated things to their lives. But when it, something happened and they're like, I don't fucking understand this. And like you have this weird blend of, you know, multiple genres that you sort of multiple styles that you sort of put into a thing. And that must. We're not going to delve into that, but that must have been really difficult to like structurally figure out and also just ex- like exit. Like when you get done writing in that thing and then go back into the real world where the world is happening in a line, that must have been jarring at times. You know, it like it was easy to get the first draft down. And also at that point, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and I didn't I wasn't like looking for anyone to tell me it was good yet or I was, I was just doing it. And, but then what it took to like make that a book afterwards, that was really hard. I think maybe even harder because I had started thinking about it that way. I was just like, I'm exploring. We'll see. All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and we're going to do the second part of the interview. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. 
That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so we're back. Um, my favorite question to ask anybody ever is this first question, which is what makes you the happiest? That's a hard question too when you're a writer. <laughs> when my writing is amazing, and I know that. Um, no, but besides that, I think that when I'm kind of in a situation where I'm like, I'm giving myself a break, like I'm, and that could mean time off of work, but just when I'm really like, not just giving myself a break, but reminding myself like, oh, isn't, isn't this nice that you are giving yourself a break right now? Um, and that takes the form. I think that like the first day of vacation um, where I'm like, wow. And then after that, then every the real world just seeps back in um, more and more and more. But the first day is great. Like when you just arrive and you have the entire time of that entire time span ahead of you. And you kind of know, like, I've, I'm gone. I left. Um, so that is really, that I like. And then I can do a smaller version of that where like, I leave my cell phone at home and I go on a hike. I'm like, this, isn't it great that I'm doing this? So it's not even about like the whole experience of like the three hours on the hike or the whole experience of the vacation. It's the beginning of it. It's setting out with like the intention of having something be different and having some pressure relieved. And that doesn't always happen. Like sometimes I'm crying by the end of the hike. Um, but the, that first moment I think is kind of like the happiest, that first moment of relief. It's really interesting. You're hard on yourself, huh? Yeah. So in your adult life, so not from the time you were a kid to an adult, in your adult life, what's the most profound ways or way that you think you've changed? So this is actually really related to what we were just talking about. <laughs> um, you know, I think that a lot of writers deal with some degree of like anxiety and some degree of depression. Uh, I mean, I know that some people just like write romance novels and feel great about it, but good for them. That's not me. And when I was younger, I think I felt like the best way to care for myself when I was having those feelings was kind of just to let myself have as much of a break as possible to just feel my feelings and do whatever seemed easy, like taking a bath or watching TV. And that was my way of dealing with things. And I think that's great. And I still encourage other people to do that. Um, and I think you do have to be gentle with yourself. However, for me, I just, now I'm just like, oh, I just love to work all the time. <laughs> and then I don't have to think about that stuff. And sometimes it comes in and it erupts a little bit, but it's, it's just a much smaller interruption. So I think I've just become like a little bit of a workaholic now where <laughs> like wake up at 6.30, work on my writing, work my eight to five job at a startup. And then, you know, I have just enough time in the evening to unwind. Um, but yeah, I think I've just become a lot more compartmentalized mm -hmm. and it's wonderful for me personally. So I, you know, I'm in therapy for trauma and I have anxiety and depression and routine. I call it not compartmentalized. Like I have to have a routine 
And when I'm out of that routine, nothing good happens. Yeah, I think that's really a better way to talk about it. Like routine is opposed to just being like, I'm so environmentalist. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it's like, you know, when I was talking about a vacation, like the first day of the vacation is great. Then after that, when you don't have your routine, then it's a little bit more like, well, what the fuck am I supposed to do now? And then that unstructured time can just be so much harder than a day when you have a lot of stuff to do, but it's within your routine and you know, you know that at six o'clock you're going to be able to eat dinner and watch television. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So tell me the story of a time that somebody, parent, mentor, friend, enemy, influenced your life. Oh, enemy. If I thought about that, that would be, <laughs> that would have been more fun, maybe. God, can I think of an enemy off the top of my head? If you can't think of them, they're not an enemy off the top of your head. (laughs) You know, like a couple of things happened in one year when I was in college that were kind of like a double-edged sword. And I kind of like write a version of this in my book. So, you know, people can go read that too. But like this, I took this one workshop and when I was applying to it, the person who I was seeing at the, or maybe we just broken up, but they told a mutual friend, like, oh, like, I don't think Rebecca deserves to be in it because she's not really a writer, Um, which, yeah. Um, And like, I hadn't written much at that point, but you know, I was in college, I was 19. I was just like, I'm creative. I just don't know what my medium is yet. Like, let me figure it out. Um, And then in that same workshop, at the end of the workshop, my instructor told me that I should be a poet. And like, it was, she didn't tell me this in person, but it was in her, her notes um, where she kind of like gone through and it could tell where she got more excited as she kind of went through the portfolio of, of 12 things or whatever. And kind of like that combination was a really double-edged sword where on the one hand, I was like, I proved them wrong. I really like did this and I'm going to do this and have done this and you know, that was a point in my life when the writing was going well, it was a great feeling and it felt amazing. Um, But then the kind of like negative of that was feeling like I really needed to prove myself. And (laughs) yeah, also in a way, just like, I think I said to someone else that I just felt a little bit cursed, like you should be a poet like that could be really, but you know, poets don't make money. Like, (laughs) right. Poets don't have a routine. Um, they, I mean, they can, they can, but once that kind of became like the way that I was going to prove myself, it can also take a lot of the joy and spontaneity out of the writing. Yeah. Well, and it's that's you've now had two people that you've discussed on this show that I feel like I need to go talk to and be like, that's <laughs> why are you the arbiter of any of this stuff? <laughs> College, you know. I wish it was just in college. Uh, true, true, yeah. true, true. <laughs> uh, people have a lot of opinions about what a thing is. Or it, I've told folks, I mean, you said romance writing earlier. Uh, that is the, the people that do romance writing are the most impressive writers that I've ever met in my whole life, particularly the ones that crank out a book a month, have built their following, have ma- are making money, have a fan base, doing some shit I couldn't do. Like there's a talent and skill in that. And I tell folks like, and you'll never see him at the pen awards or you'll never see him. And I'm like, 
it and we know like we know why right there's all the structural patriarchal reasons why but like that system was built from the ground up by people that were just like fuck it i'm gonna do this that shit's amazing to me and i'm sure a bunch of people told them like that's not really writing yeah and you know i actually have read like hundreds of romance novels um my grandmother her whole house was basically just romance novels and I started reading them at a really young age when I would go visit her over the summer and like I would you know I'd stay up all night reading these romance novels so it's like I love it and then at the same time it's you know not not the way that you traditionally prove yourself and not something that's like encouraged um if you're like a a young writer in a workshop space right are the yeah, you get your MFA, sad. there's not like the romance MFA, right? If there yeah. is, there's two, right? I'm going to get emails like, well, there's one here. Like, I just mean, <laughs> you know, like, that's not a thing. And yet those people, mostly women, have built the most successful genre of publishing. Yeah. And maybe I would be a lot happier if I were doing that. But, you know. I don't know if you'd be happier. I just mean like they were all told no. Oh yeah, right? I was like, saying that like they're the writers who in my mind are happy. Yeah, oh um, yeah, <laughs> right. Making money and happy. Like, nah, fuck yes. it, that sounds terrible. That's <laughs> way too much pressure, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could yeah. be, could be, could be that too. So I'm always interested in like people's fun, like meat story. So like, what's the weirdest, cool? like what, tell me a meat story. What's your favorite meat story? So I when I was living, I lived in New Orleans for a year. And when I moved there, I started seeing this new acupuncturist. And pretty quickly, I was like, this is acupuncture. Um, like pretty quickly, it was like, oh, like, you know, I was like, I'm feeling stressed, I'm feeling anxious. And she's like, well, there's a lot of ghosts in New Orleans, you know, because of the yellow fever. And you're probably just feeling a lot of ghosts. And like, well, in this acupuncture session, do you want to do some work to you know help dismiss the ghosts or learn how to clear the ghosts from your personal space and it turned out that her overall advice was basically just like asking them to leave basically telling them like you're free to move on um but this was just like the tip of the iceberg with this woman who's like so beautiful like former ballerina dancer really long hair acupuncturist but also just like talks to ghosts talks to plants and does a type of energy healing work that was apparently channeled from Rasputin. So I did get certified in that, um, in part just because I, you know, I think I was just a little in love with her as I'm guessing most people are. And I was like, well, I'll just hang out with her and I'll make, I'll make friends with some other people who love her. And then I'll have friends in New Orleans, even if the whole thing is predicated on like having to talk to ghosts and plants and do this Rasputin energy healing system. Um, so, you know, complete, just like bizarre person. Oh, who at yeah. the same time, the way you meet her is just like by looking for acupuncture in New Orleans and every, like my insurance covered it. It was like all kind of predicated and I'd had relationships with acupuncturists before that were just like very normal, very Chinese medicine, very much like let's work on your liver line today. And I went to see her and I was like, okay, this is a whole different universe every time I go into her house and I never know what energies and entities we're about to talk to. 
I think that that is the most writer thing I've ever heard, right? Like anytime I meet people who I'm like, this is fascinating. Like I'm in, I'm like, I need to understand this. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, sometimes you just have a relationship with those people because you can, or sometimes you just write a story about them. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty willing to go down the rabbit hole if I think it's like, a safe rabbit hole well yeah i mean yeah that's a pretty good one that's a pretty good story do you still keep in touch with her no i don't but i am still on her um newsletter so i do know that she's she charges so much money to teach people how to talk to plants of course um (laughs) yeah so you know she can and she does yeah and she also does distance energy healing not just in person which i hear a lot of people say that like you don't you can get reiki on the phone um which is great you know that's amazing i gotta say so far i've done a lot of these like we just started the show we've done a lot of these though uh that's my favorite story thank you (laughs) yeah so what is the your favorite story to tell like it doesn't have to, you know, I call it the cocktail party story. Like what's, yes. what's, what's the story that you're like, all right, guys, listen up. So yeah, this is a one that's like kind of personally embarrassing, but that I tell people compulsively um, and I'm often with my partner and they're like, oh, how did you meet? And we're like, oh, we met in graduate school. And then I tell the story where I'm like, yeah, we've been dating for three months and I was having a lot of conflict with my roommate because she didn't like that I was dating him. So I impulsively moved out of our apartment to a new apartment three blocks away from him. And then I would walk by his house at night to the deli to buy cigarettes. And I would just walk kind of like back to my house smoking, or I go back out to get a Twix because he was really bad at answering his text messages. He didn't understand the importance of that yet. So I just wanted to see what was up. so and he was almost always in the living room which you could see from the front window watching television so what city was this in this is in providence rhode island okay because that sounds like some new york stalker stuff right (laughs) it was some providence rhode island stalker stuff where yeah i would just i'd just walk by his window like you know pretty much nightly like if we weren't hanging out and he didn't really like know this um and we ended up moving in together like very soon after that because I'd just been like moving closer and closer and you know also we were in graduate school so it was expensive for him to live for us both to live in a one-bedroom apartment but yeah in his mind I was like crawling up to the window and looking in and that's what he usually interjects and tells people during this story but I'm always like no no like I didn't have to you could just walk by and see right into the windows so it was easy it was like the it was low commitment yeah I mean how many how many cats get you know adopted into homes like that they just kind of wander around and somebody's like yeah this feels good we also, that's how we got a cat, Yeah, a, a third cat when we were then living in that apartment together. Same thing. You know, the cat would just be outside the window on the trash can. And we were like, okay, he'll come live with us too. So basically I, I was that cat. Yeah. This is, this is how, this is how we bring family members into the house. Now guys, whoever <laughs> happens to be by the window. Just invited in. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I mean, it could have ended in a multitude of ways. So I'm glad that that ended well. Yes, definitely. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's a, n- not the 
story that most people tell about the beginning of their 10 year relationship. <laughs> and I just love to tell a story that's like not the most flattering to myself. That's um, also a very writer thing to do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I just like people to, to know, like I might not want to brag about my writing, but I, I want them to know that I will do stuff like that. that that's who I am. <laughs> That's the best. Well, this you are goddamn delightful. Let me just tell you, this has been so much fun. This is my first podcast as well. So. Oh, excellent. Well, you did great. Um, you're gonna be fantastic. Uh, I love the bookshelf. And I hope you have a good day. And I hope we can do this again sometime when the next one comes out. Yes. Thank you so much. Delightful. Just delightful. That was Rebecca Van Lair. Her book, How to Adjust to the Dark, came out in March. You should go get that. I'm always fascinated by the ways in which writers answer those questions. And sometimes how it matches up with, but more times uh, how it differs from what I was thinking when I wrote it. It's just fascinating. We are a weird lot. Before we get out of here, couple reminders talked about at the top of the show leave us those reviews either at apple podcast or facebook the writer's jam and tell your friends about us also don't forget we are part of the solid listen podcast network there are 11 other shows malls and nicole have put those together the nicest place on the internet for pop culture and all kinds of stuff like that uh so check all of those out including the flagship the thing that started it all mother may i sleep with podcast with host and our Solid Listen podcast queen, Molly McLear. Don't forget, we got three shows on this channel. You just listened to the After Party. It's that weird Q&A storytelling thing. Jam Sessions, which is our nonfiction short-form show. We take a deep dive into um, issues that are affecting people today. And then The Jam, which is our hour-long program that comes out every Wednesday. Get yourself subscribed wherever you're listening to podcasts right now. Or if you had a terrible experience with whatever you're using, go to somewhere else and subscribe, and you'll never miss anything we do. And remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet. Good morning, everyone. This is Trevor Van Winkle, and you're listening to Homestead on the Corner. You are noisy, your earth, calling out into the airless, transmitting in the bond. It's just not what I expected, but I remembered. Not how you remember. Dear child, nothing here has changed. Nothing here ever changes. Take us out of here. Maximum acceleration. Heading? Captain? Let's chase that horizon. Homestead on the Corner, a writing advice podcast and audio drama anthology from the creators of The Sheridan Tapes. Listen now on all podcasting platforms or at homesteadonthecorner.com.